Hello, this is Trebuchet Talks, an irregular podcast that increases the range of art through interviews with contemporary creatives. As always, we aim to go further and perhaps weirder behind the walls of art in the UK. I'm Kailesh, and I'm coming to you from Trebuchet Towers in the Tier 3 heart of that London, where Christmas is right around the corner, and I'm personally looking forward to the end of 2020. In this episode, we have an interview with Dr. James Millen from King's College London. James leads the Levitated Nanophysics Group, which explores the interface between the weird and wonderful world of quantum physics and nanotechnology. Normally at this stage, we'd have a chat with the resplendent Megan, but she's taking a break for a bit, Christmas shopping safely, we hope. She'll be back in later episodes, so no fear. I suppose some listeners might be asking why there's been such a break between episodes, and the best answer is that we've been sidetracked working on some exciting projects that have been quite intense. Apologies to everyone. Normal transmission will resume here on in. Fingers crossed. So, by the sound of red pen scribbling and grammatical curses, here's an update from the print room. We've been very busy working on the next issue, Materials, featuring exclusive interviews, articles and art with artists such as Gavin Turk, Gilbert and George, Herman Nitsch, Dylan Martinez, Richard Stone, Barbara Carsten, Gail Alding, Tassida Dean, Gerhard Richter and many more. It's been quite exhausting along with everything else that's been going on, but we're getting there. We aim to get the issue out in January, so subscribe today to ensure you get your copy first. As well as subscribing to receive the magazine, we also have subscriber print. As regular listeners might know, Trebuchet started a discussion about how artists could reach a broader audience and how we might help facilitate building a network of fledgling art collectors. So we've proposed that each subscriber receives an exclusive signed and numbered print in order to build their collection and to track the progress of that artist over time. James Johnston's A Reckoning was such a success, we're happy to announce the next print. For issue 9, we're sending out a signed, numbered, and limited edition print of The Other Side by Mark Batty. Some readers will be familiar with him from issue 6, Time and Space. Mark's work is influenced by astronomy and the cosmos, as well as an awestruck admiration of beauty. This subject matter serves as a vessel for his personal research and is into the intersection of science and representation that his work finds form. Batty aims to produce a natural representation of the cosmos. However, due to the nature of space, the result can often seem free of reference and subject matter, blurring the lines between representation and abstraction. He touches on the sublime and magisterial gaze which shapes our notion of the cosmos and at the same time evokes ideas of exploration into both intellectual and physical spaces. To this end, he aims to present the viewer with a universe that is both overwhelming and yet within our grasp. For his trebuchet print, Mark explains that it's part of my ongoing terrestrial pigment series in which I use rocks relevant to each planet or moon, grinding them into pigment to make paint. As with my previous moon painting, depicting the familiar face we see from Earth, I have used a northersite to make the paint. A northersite is found across the lunar highlands and was in the samples brought back from the Apollo missions. After the success of the first lunar painting, it seemed appropriate to paint the mysterious far side that is always facing away from us. Intriguing stuff. But how do I get my hands on one of these prints? I hear you ask. For more information, you can visit our subscriber print page via the subscription section of our site. And at £35 UK, £70 rest of the world, you get four issues of the magazine plus four signed prints. And it's a fun way to build your art collection. Plus, you're supporting a burgeoning independent network of international artists. It's also worth noting that it's not going to be possible to offer a numbered 
print for every issue for every subscriber. So we're going to have to cap it at some point. But for now, subscribe and join us. Existing subscribers will have received the wonderful print by James Johnson, who at the time of recording is exhibiting at the Don't Walk Walk Gallery. Information of that and on subscriber prints in the show notes. And now the segment you've all been waiting for, subscriber shoutouts. As a bit of a fun bonus for subscribers and backers, we're going to give something of an informative and hopefully intriguing shout out as a way of saying thanks for supporting us. Each episode, we read out a little bit of one of the books we're using to put our next issue together. This time, as we're working on the ontology of the material world, as seen through a creative gaze, we thought we'd feature Graham Harmon's object-oriented ontology, a new theory of everything. Graham Harmon is a distinguished professor of philosophy at SciArc, Los Angeles, a key figure in the contemporary speculative realism movement in philosophy and for his development of the field of object-oriented ontology, otherwise known as Triple O. He was named by Art Review Magazine as one of the 100 most influential figures in international art, which makes him a good read. While it goes without saying that all our subscribers, listeners, iTunes commenters, sharers, and water cooler conversationalists get our heartiest thanks, something extra special goes to those subscribers and Patreon supporters who make it possible for us to keep doing this. At the £3 level, you get a juicy phrase pulled at random. At £7, you get a tasty sentence. And then for the loftiest patrons and subscribers, they'll receive a full weird paragraph. So in this episode, we have four subscribers who receive a paragraph each. The first subscriber is Brian Kay, and his paragraph starts, The first false assumption, everything that exists must be physical. A successful string theory would sum up everything we know about the structure and behavior of physical matter. But this makes it a theory of everything, only on the condition that everything is physical. And for Jeffrey S., we have our second false assumption, which reads, everything that exists must be basic and simple. Having read the previous paragraphs, Brown will reply that we have missed the point. So our third false assumption goes to Susan W. Everything that exists must be real. One of the greatest fictional heroes of all time is surely the detective Sherlock Holmes in the stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And finally, we have our fourth false assumption, which goes out to our lovely subscriber, Karen. Everything that exists must be able to be stated accurately in literal propositional language. Here are some scientific statements chosen at random from the three books of science nearest to hand in my living room. Well, that got a bit meta, didn't it? Again, thank you everyone for supporting Trebuchet. And so that's it from the print room. So without further ado, we have our feature talk from Dr. James Millen. Growing up in Dorset, specifically the sunny Swanage by the sea, he escaped the tranquil countryside to study physics at Imperial College London, where he saw tons of bands and was overwhelmed by buildings more than three stories high. He gained his PhD at Durham University and was awarded a Mary Curry Fellowship to work at the University of Vienna. In 2017, he was awarded the David Bates Prize for his pioneering contributions to experimental and theoretical quantum optomechanics before taking up his current role at King's in 2018. This interview was recorded earlier in the year at Trebuchet's virtual talks. 
Hi. Can I apologize to everyone for my ugly curtains? <laughs> I was hoping it was going to be dark enough outside. What's it doing being light at eight in the evening? Summer is coming. I know. It's good news. <laughs> um, so a little bit of an introduction. Dr. James Millen from King's College London. You've got some incredible words associated with uh, with your academic career. Um, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to pick out some of them, and people can kind of work out the sentence structure from there. Lecturer is a very good word. Uh, levitated nanophysics group is also an excellent phrase. You like that one, yeah? I, it's just amazing. Um, quantum physics and nanotechnology uh, is is also particularly good um but i guess it, it's always going to come back to experimental and theoretical quantum optomechanics which is a mm -hmm. really good place to start so what is that <laughs> yeah well i'm keenly feeling being an experimental scientist at the moment because we're all locked out of our labs for good reason of course um <laughs> so um well, I tell you what, I'll talk about the the opto uh, mechanics bit first. Right. So this is um, quite an amazing thing, really. Um, so I don't know what people feel about light. And in fact, this isn't the first talk I've kind of given to an audience that's perhaps more interested in art. And normally, if I give that kind of talk, it's on the subject of light. Um, and light is really quite um, an amazing and mysterious thing. And I think one of the things that's most surprising about light is its ability to affect other things directly. So you think of light as, I don't know, ethereal and weightless, but light can really push on things. If you, if you shine a torch on someone, it does actually push against them a little bit. And you don't normally notice this because it's very weak. Um, but for example, if you um, look into space, uh, then even hundreds of years ago, people noticed that the tails of comets bent away from the sun. And this is because the light from the sun pushes against the comet tails. Um, and there are satellites um, that people have launched, um, which have big reflective sails, um, and the sunlight uh, hits against them. It exerts a really tiny force, but there's no friction in space. And so you have spacecraft out there, which are literally sailing on a sunbeam which is kind of amazing um uh the japanese sailed a, a satellite from from the earth to venus which is towards the sun so they must have had to tack into the solar wind which is uh, amazing so many of these ideas sound like science fiction but they're actually really established technology and in mm. fact just in 2018 the nobel prize in physics uh, was jointly awarded to arthur ashkin because he um, pioneered this technique, which is called optical tweezers, which is using little focused beams of light to pick things up. Um, and this is this also sounds amazing. You can pick things up like individual cells or bacteria or viruses indeed, and you can control them and manipulate them and tell how they work. And this is such established technology that you can just go and buy one of these. Maybe it will cost you 10,000, which in terms of scientific equipment isn't very much money. Every hospital will have several um, optical tweezer kits, which are used for analyzing. Um, you know, you can like trap a red blood cell in a focused laser beam. You can grab both sides of it and you can stretch it. 
And by mm. seeing how stretchy this blood cell is, you can tell if someone has diabetes or not. You know, it's like amazing technology. Mm. Um, so that's the optomechanics bit. The amazing thing about light is that over the last, I don't know, 30 years, we've worked so hard on our ability to control light that we can do it now just with exquisite precision. Right. And so if you can then control matter like physical objects um, using this, this, this tool, this resource of light, then you can then control those physical objects incredibly well. And you can control their motion so well but you can start to see effects that you wouldn't otherwise have noticed. And this would maybe be quantum effects. And in fact, this really um, reminds me of something that Benji said, which is, I think he said, I mean, I want to be careful because I think he said, you know, he explores levitation. And I, and I think that was for some, you know, serious social issues. Um, and he did that to free himself. Um, but that's exactly in the lab, why I explore levitation, uh, I levitate objects to free them from their environment and to, to protect them from any disturbance outside, which would otherwise mask the behavior which I'm looking for. Uh, so that's the optomechanics bit. Oh, wow. And there's an aspect of, of quantum physics that you know, ties into the, the surreal. Yeah, uh, you, you've got a, a, a feeling on that. Can you describe, you know, what is what is surreal about quantum physics? Yeah, so I, I did think uh, it was worthwhile looking up what surreal actually meant, uh, or even better, surrealism. And I found a definition. I'm just looking at my notes here that surrealism is a juxtaposition of uncommon imagery, often featuring illogical scenes. And what really uh, struck me there was this term illogical, because as a scientist, I guess, there's nothing illogical about those scenes you show me. Like there's nothing impossible going on there. But what seems illogical is it's not something which we as the observer are expecting to see. And yeah. that's, a, that's really the key of uh, quantum physics is that the behavior it predicts and indeed the things you see are not what you expect as the human observer. Um, in particular, it brings the subject very much into the into the realm of physics. So we're not just uh, thinking about objects ourselves. Um, we start to have to worry about uh, subjects, so the people looking at the object. And actually, that was something else that Benji said, which I thought was really interesting. Is he said that uh, he likes to study objects because. He likes to get at, at the soul of the object. I don't think I'm misquoting him there. And that's really interesting because there's a lot of philosophical thought about the fact that you never um, really, you never experience an object fully, right? So if I was to pick up a book, um, if I pick up a book, I, you know, I'm confident that's a book, but all I really experience if I pick it up is its weight and maybe its shape. And there's no way that you believe that if just from that information, I could describe to someone else that this is a book. You know, you do, there's more to that object than, than just how I can describe my interaction with it. You know, maybe you can never fully describe an object. You know, if I say there's a red sock and go, well, describe what a red sock is. And, and yeah. how would I do that mathematically? Because it could be different sizes and all kinds of things. And so there's a disconnect between the true object and what we observe about the object. And I have actually read things that say that, in fact, that's what art is. Art is 
like the the human's attempt to get at the reality of an object which we never normally have access to in a in another forum but uh, maybe i should go on to quantum physics since you asked the question so there's a really Ill, i think if you wouldn't mind putting up that first image that i can see as yeah, a thumbnail sure. there so this is a, a really beautiful image uh, by Berenice Abbott, a photographer, and I think she was working at MIT in 1958. She used to be an architectural photographer, but she went to work in a science department and took images of um, scientific uh, processes, and maybe we'll come back to that. But what you see here is what I would call an interference pattern. Uh, so in this exact image, what you have is you have two little pins at the bottom, and they're on some water and they're causing vibrations in the water and that's those two circles you see but we know that as those ripples spread out that they overlap with each other and you see that far away from those those two origin points the pattern is very complicated mm. and the reason that pattern is very complicated is that there are two waves coming out of those objects you wouldn't get a complicated pattern if you just had one of those it's the fact there's two waves there um, and so what was noticed in quantum physics is that if you made two little holes in a sheet and you fired particles at them, like electrons, so massive particles, one at a time, and you look on the other side of these holes, you see this complicated pattern. And this was very mysterious because this is a property of a wave. And a wave is an object which isn't localized in space. It's a spread out object. Uh, yet we knew that these particles were particles because when we detected them on the screen at the other end, they're arriving as little points. And so what this experiment proved um, and does prove is that to see this pattern, somehow this one object must have been in two places at the same time because you can only make this pattern by having a wave originate from two different places. So this object must have been in two different places at the same time. And so this was observed with light and with small electrons. Uh, but now it's even been observed with quite large things. So I wonder if, you, Megan, you could play the first video. I really hope it's muted because it's got some cheesy soundtrack to it. Yeah, hopefully it will just loop. So this um, is an experiment from Vienna. Um, where they're getting very large molecules. These are molecules made of thousands of atoms. It doesn't matter if, it, if the video doesn't work. This image will probably be good enough. So what they do in this experiment anyway is that they get these molecules one at a time and they fire them through two little slits one at a time. And what they see at the end of their experiment is these molecules arriving one at a time as little red dots. They're molecules which glow. So they arrive as a little red dot, one at a time. Have I crashed your computer with my giant well, video? Let's just imagine. <laughs> yeah, sure. But if you do this over and over again, uh-huh. Yeah, so you see this collection of little red dots. Each one of those is a molecule. But as they let this experiment run for a very long time, you see that where the molecules land forms this pattern. And if you just fire little bullets through a, a couple of slits, then you just expect a blob of little bullets on the other side. And this complicated pattern proves that each molecule must have gone through both of those slits at the same time, which are much greater separated in the size of this molecule. So this is somehow saying that quantum physics 
uh, plays with reality in a, in a strange way, such you can have one object in two different places. And where it overlaps even more with surrealism is that as far as um, we can tell, what this actually means is really this object does not have any property called a position until you try to make this measurement at the end. So right. there is no particle until you try and look where it is. And in fact, if you try and watch which one of the slits this particle goes through, you no longer get this pattern anymore. The observer breaks the quantum physics. Uh, and that's why I have to levitate things. I have to protect them from the observer, right? Ah, so just to explain, you levitate things to protect them from the observer. Yeah. How, how can you do that? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so the observer, for example, can be, you know, some gas molecules bumping into uh, bumping into your object of study, um, or it yeah. could be some vibrations from the environment. But if you've just got like a coin sat on the table and you want to study the quantum properties of this coin, well, it's going to be very difficult because first off, a car is probably going to drive past and shake your table and the coin's going to bounce. Uh, not only that, but the table is warm. And if you look at a macro on a microscopic level, all of the atoms in the table are vibrating around, moving this coin around. There's all the light in the room reflecting off this coin. And as I already said, the light, you know, exerts a force on this coin. Uh, so you really have to be careful uh, if you want to try and see these um, kind of quantum effects. Should I, I can I can continue or do you want to continue your questions? I'm just trying to find the video and get it working. Uh, it's a nice video, but don't worry too much about it. I, I think we have we have it working. Sorry, because it was quite nice, and I'm sure people would love to see it. I'm gonna uh, answer one of the questions I see uh, because it's just so relevant to to right now, which yeah. is, does this experiment prove the molecules were in two places at the same time? Um, yes. So the the existence of that pattern you see at the end. There are very few ways you can explain that. So it proves that something existed in two different places at the same time, one single object. But uh, there are ways around this, but they involve bending the rest of physics over backwards. So for example, having things traveling faster than the speed of light, which we have no evidence for. But yeah, this is a, this is a, a guaranteed proof that something has existed in two places at the same time. And so a lot of what my, my research is trying to do is trying to see how far you can take this because we never see objects in, you know, we never notice objects being in two different places at the same time. We never see the evidence of that happening around us in like our day-to-day -day lives. And actually, if you can get the, oh, you've got this video up. Is that the wrong one? Uh, I mean, it's the right video uh, for what we were saying before. I'd moved on. Oh. I can put another one on. If you put the last, the last video, I Nano rod one or nano rod three. Oh, three. Coming up. Yeah. So this is a kind of experiment I want to do. So you imagine we have some tiny little cylinder um, levitated in space, and then actually, what quantum mechanics predicts is that if you let it go, it will start to rotate but it will start to rotate in all different directions at the same time, which is totally mind blowing. Um, it goes once at a time, huh? 
So I want to try and see evidence of an object which is still quite small, some hundreds of nanometers in size, but that's still large technologically. We can build structures much smaller than that and we use them in computers, for example. And I want to see evidence that these large objects are, are spinning in every single direction at the same time, because that will tell us a little bit about if this physics is just a physics of the microscopic and we don't have to worry too much about it, or whether it's physics which actually will start to, you know, um, play with the world around us. And, and that has certain philosophical implications. So what you're going to see is it, it goes fast and it goes slow. So don't worry if you miss it the first time. All these dots are individual molecules landing on this screen at the end. But as they keep on landing, you see that they make a pattern. So if we look at it close up, so you see these molecules arriving one at a time. So you know that there are individual particles. You know that each particle isn't some spread out thing. We know they're individual points but they land in a way such that to get where they end up, they must have had to take two different paths at the same time. And this is, by the way, this is a totally normal effect uh, for waves, for normal things. So for water waves or for sound waves, if you're in a music venue and there's two um, big speakers at the front of the room and you walk along the back of the room, you'll hear the music go loud and quiet loud and quiet in little stripes you know that's nothing mysterious but that's a property of the fact that waves are spread out and that they're coming from two the same sound is coming from two places at the same time and so how can it be that one object originates in two different places that's a bit more mysterious is there a to kind of uh, ask a reasonably silly question with your understanding of waves as they operate there is there a better place to stand at a gig than in front of the uh, the mixing desk uh, you want to stand um, right in the middle and then just move either side until it gets loudest. <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle should be the worst place, actually. Uh, oh, really? I think, yeah, that's where all the waves should cancel out. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, but maybe you don't need it to be loudest in the middle, huh? uh, the mixing desk. It depends on personal flavour, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so the, the um, levitated nanophysics group at King's, yeah. Um, can you describe what what the activities are of that? And is it uh, a group of, of people like yourself who are looking at, you know, obviously levitating those those shapes uh, and, and seeing how they operate? Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds very grand, but the, the, the levitated nanophysics group is is just my team of researchers. So it's me and six other people um, in the lab. And... Yes. Um, so we know for sure that small objects behave by the rules of quantum physics, and they don't have to be that small. You know, people are really making progress into making, you know, nanoscale objects behave in this way. But at the same time, we're continuously miniaturizing technology ourselves. You know, people are building smaller and smaller devices, squeezing more and more computer chips into every, you know, square millimeter. And so people are going to have to worry if their devices, their buildings start to encroach upon the quantum territory because that will cause different physics to happen. Oh, it will just... that. So yeah. we, have to be, we have to be aware of, of 
of different buildings that might have different laws of nature. Ah, so maybe it's even better to go the other way. So, so when I said that, so this thing about um, surrealism being illogical, right? There's a yeah. really there's a quote I like very much, which is that um, common sense is only quantum logic applied to large objects, right? So quantum logic is the more fundamental thing. But as you start to apply the rules of quantum physics to larger and larger objects, quantum yeah. physics predicts more and more normal behavior. So the way that normal objects behave is not a mystery to quantum physics. You know, um, if you use quantum physics to predict the behavior of a, of a tennis ball, the tennis ball is going to predict exactly as you expect. But the the normal rules of physics, which is often called classical physics, just doesn't work on the scale of quantum objects, of atoms, of molecules and things. And so as you start to build devices that get smaller and smaller, yeah. which you're building, um, relying upon the rules of classical physics, how you think they're going to behave, eventually you're going to get into the realm of quantum physics and your devices are not going to behave as they expect, which is quite a negative way of looking at things uh, a better way maybe of looking at things is that if you do start to build on this very tiny scale you can exploit these laws of quantum physics to do interesting things and that's also i think up top i said you know this isn't science fiction you know people are building quantum computers now you know people send quantum signals um across the world via satellites you know you can send them down optical fibers you can go into a shop and you can buy you know a quantum communication scrambler off a off a shelf you know does these quantum things exist you can use quantum particles to prospect for oil underground and people do you know this is i don't know why it's so basically badly advertised but i mean quantum technologies are real and they're out there and they have been already for years and so knowing how to exploit that's really important. And so in my lab, yeah, that we, we try and find this kind of boundary and the tension between these kind of two different types of physics. Which is, uh, I suppose, similar to what a lot of surrealist art does, is looking at the boundaries between uh, dream understanding and, and, uh, and waking reality, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Which into uh, perhaps a final question before Q&A and I, I do see that there's a lot of people have been asking questions which is fantastic so please have a read and, and upvote so the one of the, the fascinating one of the many fascinating parts of, of your work is looking at the interface between um, quantum physics and nanotechnology which I guess mm. leads on from what you're saying what sort of nanotechnology are you building or working with and what sort of applications? What what are the big questions that you're or challenges that you're trying to solve with nanotechnology, and how does quantum physics help? Yeah, so um, definitely my my kind of major driver is trying to see if quantum physics still persists at this scale of nanotechnology. Which, although this isn't your question, I'll just dwell there for a moment because some people say that oh, it just doesn't matter, right? Because uh, like I say, quantum physics predicts uh, that the moon will behave exactly as we see the moon behaving. But actually, if you dig really deep into what quantum physics is saying, it actually still says, however, nonetheless, the moon is not there unless it's being observed, right? In, maybe quantum physics predicts that it's only not there for the tiniest fraction of a second. It will always be impossible to ever notice or have any effect. But philosophically, 
the realism of the moon depends on the observer. And so it does matter if quantum physics pushes into our world. So I am very interested in that direction. But yes, the other direction is also important because actually as you get smaller and smaller, um, other areas of physics uh, start to behave in strange ways that isn't just quantum physics. So for example, I'm very interested in biological systems. So very many processes in biology are, are, are driven by motion and vibrations and molecules literally walking around and the surfaces of cells stretching and vibrating and things. And the understanding of the mechanics of that is not the same as understanding how a drum skin stretches and vibrates. But it's very hard to access you know, the vibration of the skin of a cell or something. And so that's why we try and build like in the lab, these very controlled analogs to try and, you know, build our own versions of, of these systems to try and, you know, get some understanding of the physics at this scale. And even then it can be qu quite counterintuitive. Um, so yeah. for example, you can build tiny engines uh, at this scale and, you know, an engine just, takes heat and turns it into your your wheels turning of your car you have an explosion of the petrol and your wheels turn but just sometimes if you're down at this nanoscale your engine will run backwards once in a while it'll only it'll only your car will only drive forwards on average just sometimes it will also go backwards so there's all kinds of strange things here and and yeah. certainly if you're trying to apply like these these laws of, of thermodynamics and mechanics uh to the processes in living objects um you don't get very good results so you have to understand the physics in a slightly different way and by saying not very good you mean not very predictable yeah that's the... right i mean it's just wrong it's <laughs> <laughs> <Just> wrong <laughs> there's uh, an interesting uh, I, was, I was chatting to a scientist recently who's looking at biological systems uh, uh in relation to the biosphere 2 project in the 90s there's a documentary coming out uh and she was saying that the interesting part of her science was looking at network systems and how things have an interconnected effect on each other yeah on a nano scale is that something that you guys look at too because what you oh. described there was kind of isolating something and saying okay we don't know exactly how a, a, a cell membrane operates but we can make an analog of that which is possibly in a simulated or, or in a, a separated environment but oh, yeah it, other spheres there are things have a, a, a wealth of variables that could you know do a whole sorts of things sure so i mean this this kind of networking idea is really uh, important with quantum physics as well so say you manage to get your you know very fancy device from google and you get it to do something really quantum uh and that's really useful for some reason that i certainly don't have time to go into here but then you want to get that useful information out uh, or you want to store it somewhere. Well, I've yeah. already just said, like, this quantum physics hates being watched. So um, it becomes like, it's like you can build a hard drive uh, for your quantum computer, but it's impossible to build a screen or something, right? It's it's like yeah. networking all these different bits together is very hard. And in fact, when you get these particles and you levitate them, so they're just in space, they're moving around and they move around um, uh like the head of a pendulum so they they vibrate in this laser beam backwards and forwards or like a bell when a bell is rung um and because they're levitating the vacuum if you hit one of these things like a bell it will ring forever because it's totally as we discussed uh as benji even discussed you know you you freed this object from any loss from any 
uh, uh, losing its energy to the environment. It's perfectly protected. And so actually these levitated things um, are a really good potential way of networking different devices together because you can kind of get this quantum information from some fancy technology you can have. You can carefully kind of ring your bell with it and the bell will just ring, keeping this information safe and it's ringing for a long time. And then you can pull it out. For example, you can pull it out with light because we have opto mechanics, the opto with the mechanics of this ringing bell. And then you can pull it out with light. I think that's a, a fantastic way. And I have so many more questions I'd like to ask, such as, does that mean that the basis of your retrieval system is light-based, I suppose? Yeah, it could be. If you're accessing things. Um, okay, let's see what the questions are. Uh, if you're up for it. Please. Yeah, always up for it. We've got... There's lots uh, of ones about a double slit experiment. <laughs> um, well, let's start with the top one, which is from Bonnie. Which is where where should you sit for the best three D effects in a cinema? <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's a very complicated. I mean, you can people know. Ask an acoustician, Bonnie. It's uh, <laughs> a different discipline. <laughs> I'm sorry. And there's 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 a, there's a young man called Mr. Malcolm Fairburn. And he asks, uh, what happens if you check which slits the light goes through? Yeah, um, so I think I did mention that. Um, Malcolm uh, clearly wasn't listening carefully enough because um, uh, he was probably distracted. Um, but this is the amazing thing, right? So if I say that you only get this pattern uh, because this object goes through two slits at the same time, I mean, that's clearly impossible. It's impossible for one object to be in two places at the same time. In fact, I'd agree about that. That's impossible. Um, and so what the question is, is you want to watch which one it goes through, because surely it must go through one slit or the other. And if you do try and watch which slit it goes through, you no longer see the quantum physics happening. You get a totally normal image on the other side. So the observation of this kind of breaks it happening. And in fact, this is a good... Uh, so I would say that you know, I said that it makes no sense for this object to be in two places at once. Uh, so the way I would describe it is that object is in neither place. It doesn't have anything that you would describe as a position until you come to try and measure it. That, that just doesn't even exist. And if it's possible, could I have the image of the bouncing ball uh, yeah. from my slide? So this is another image that Berenice Abbott took. And I think this is fundamentally the difference between normal physics and quantum physics and why quantum physics feels so surreal which is with normal physics if you imagine the physics of you know a bouncing ball or something aha uh -huh. perfect i think it's probably my second uh my third slide amazing that's good enough so um here what you see is it's a bouncing ball and berenice albert took photos of it at lots of different times but you can watch this ball bounce so not only do you know where the ball started and you know where the ball ends but you can say exactly what the ball is doing at all points in between and in quantum physics you can't do that you can predict where the ball starts and where the ball ends but actually we've raised it to such a level but we say the question of asking where the ball is in between is actually a totally meaningless question you can't even ask. It doesn't make any sense to ask that question. 
And if you do try and watch where the ball goes, then you're going to see exactly what you'd expect from classical physics and not quantum physics anymore. Hmm. So I, I really feel that's uh, really, I think that's why humans struggle to understand the logical framework of quantum mechanics, even though it's perfectly mathematically logical, is because you you cannot, you know, watch what something does the whole time to see how it moves. You can only predict what it's going to do in the end of your experiment. Well, James, I think we're a little bit pressed for time. So we've got possibly time for, for one more quick question from okay. me. Quick the answer then. Right. Quick answer, yes, no sort of thing. No. <laughs> Maybe a bit more depth than that. Uh, Richard White asks, have the molecules reverted to a wave by virtue of being in two places at once? Yeah, so I think, I don't know why um, um, we never came up with a good word for this behavior. So you hear this phrase wave-particle duality, which is the particle arrives at the screen. I'm going to give you a secret, that's my cousin. Um, the, <laughs> the particle arrives at the screen as, as a point, um, but it travels as if it was a wave, but it's neither, right? So the thing that's wave-like um, is, is something called the wave function, which as far as we're aware is only some abstract mathematics and not something that is real. And if it is real, it certainly doesn't exist in the same three-dimensional space as us. So I would say, no, the particle does not travel as a wave, but a wave-like object predicts where you're going to find your particle at the end. Well, fantastic. Dr. James Millen, thank you so much. And there's a, a big virtual round of applause. Well, sounds a bit lonely when I do it, but imagine that everyone else has done it too. And, and thank I can you. Clap, I can clap myself. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to the Trebuchet Magazine podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform, share us on your social media channel of choice, or consider becoming a subscriber. We're currently taking pre-orders of issue 9 from the website, which is at £10 instead of the regular price of 14 in the UK, or for 15.50 for worldwide orders, usually 19.50. Till next time, stay very safe and have yourselves a wonderful Christmas from all here at Trebuchet.